sermon series on the book of Acts. So at church, as Malcolm said, we try to mark special days that are special for the Christian calendar. So these are days like Christmas, Good Friday, Easter. And today and next week are two of those special Christian calendar days. Today we're marking the day traditionally known as Ascension Sunday. That's a day that remembers the return of the risen Jesus to be with God the Father. And then next Sunday is the day that we're going to remember Pentecost, the day the Holy Spirit came. So these two stories are told in the first two chapters of Acts. And we're going to look over the next month or two, the first seven or eight chapters of Acts, with one chapter a week. So with that in mind, let's get down to the first chapter of Acts. Do you want to read it, Nicole? In my first book I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. During the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive and he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Once, when he was eating with them, he commanded them, Do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. John baptised with water, but in just a few days you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? He replied, The Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. As they strained to see him rising into heaven, Two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, Why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. So the, the story of Jesus finishing up his time on earth ends with his followers staring up into the sky. An amazing thing had just happened. They had witnessed Jesus taken up into the sky on a cloud. What a showman Jesus was. What an effect. And the disciples just stood there, dumbstruck, looking up into the sky. Like this guy. I wonder how long they stood there for. Minutes? Hours? Too long in any case. Because two men appeared, messengers from God, who told them to get on get on with it. Get moving. What are you standing here for? The angels God said to the disciples why do you reckon they said that why did God send these men to tell them to stop staring and get moving thoughts jobs to do that was what was the point yeah nothing to see here move along move along Mm -hmm. I reckon they did it to reassure them as well yeah because it must have been a bit confusing when all of a sudden he was with them and then then gone. Yeah, it would have been a bit frightening in some ways too. Yep, yep. I reckon they're all good thoughts. I think one of them is is what uh, Shalanda said. The two angels appeared, 
to move them along and remind them they had a job to do. There was no time to spare in their job. Jesus had given them instructions and they just needed to act right away. They needed to get moving and follow his instructions. And the first part of his instructions were pretty simple. Return to Jerusalem, be ready, waiting for the Holy Spirit, so that they could take the message of Jesus to the world. See these instructions from Jesus? Don't leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. John baptised with water, but in just a few days you'll baptise with the Holy Spirit. The Father alone has the authority to set the dates and times regarding the establishment of his kingdom. They're not for you to know, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. You'll be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So the disciples needed to return to Jerusalem, prepare for the coming Holy Spirit. And then they would tell everyone everywhere about Jesus. They would be witnesses. Witness, it's a word that we all understand. We know that there are good witnesses and bad witnesses. Simon and I last week watched 12 Angry Men, which is a movie about a jury, and the jury is speaking about the reliability of different witnesses. It was a fascinating movie. It's fascinating to think about witness unreliability. What would make someone a good or a bad witness, as we thought about as we watched the movie? So you want to share their thoughts. What makes someone a good witness? Having facts together. Facts together. Honesty. Truth. Not filling in the gaps, but just telling the truth as they remember it. Yes, keep yeah. it simple. Don't mm. embellish. All good thoughts. Uh, by the way, you would have heard many parts of this sermon before. This is a conglomeration of ideas that you would have heard. So uh, anyone can be a witness to that? Anyone remember this sermon? <laughs> Probably. Um, when Nicole was about 20 or so she was the witness to a crime she was with her sister Monique and they had just been to a concert with some friends in a, in a hotel in Adelaide so this is the Governor Hindmarsh Hotel and as you can see from the name and the map it's a suburb it's, it's in the suburb Hindmarsh in Adelaide anyway Nicole and her sister Monique were standing outside the Governor Hindmarsh when a group of girls ran past them and snatched their handbags and ran off. Later at the police station, Monique was being questioned. So where were you when your bag was stolen? Which suburb were you in? The policeman asked. I don't know, said Monique. You were in the Governor Hindmarsh, said the policeman. I was in Hindmarsh, said Monique. Nicole wasn't any better. So, you think there were four people involved in the robbery, said the policeman. Can you describe their appearance? No, I can't, but it was a blue handbag. Had white clouds on it. Um, okay, were the perpetrators male or female? I can't remember. <laughs> so neither Nicole nor her sister were very good witnesses that day. They didn't know many of the facts. Nicole's lack of immediate recall isn't that unusual, actually. And I'm not talking about Nicole specifically. <laughs> I'm talking about witnesses in general. It's common for witnesses to, su- uh, witnesses to not be able to recall facts. That's a really common experience for most witnesses. It's very hard to be a good witness. But the fact remains, to be a good witness, you have to know the facts. You can't be a witness if you don't have a grasp of some of the facts and the details. But not only that, you have to be both you have to know the facts, but you also have to be able and willing to talk about the facts, to communicate the truth. That's necessary if you're going to be a witness. 
Knowing the facts isn't enough. A witness has to be ready to share the facts, to talk about them. And this actually isn't always very easy, because sometimes there are dangers at being a witness, which is why, for example, the Witness Relocation Program exists. A witness and his family can be relocated, given new identities when they testify against people involved in organised crime, for example. So a few years back I read a newspaper article about a home invasion committed by a man named Mr Perry. Mr Perry broke into a home, assaulted a 23-year-old woman and her two-year-old child. During Perry's trial, the mum was the main witness. But when it came time for the prosecution to ask her to point at the man who had committed the crime, she refused. Again and again, she was questioned by the lawyer if she recognised Perry and if he was the one who committed the crime. This was her response. I don't want to go through with this. It seems you guys are forcing me to testify. I might have, my court in the, he might, I might have the court in my corner today, but when I'm home, who's going to be in my corner? Nobody. The woman was scared. She was worried. If she pointed to Perry as her attacker then maybe he'd come and seek revenge. Perhaps I didn't get that. Could you... <laughs> Perhaps a threat against her or her child had already been made. Obviously something was making her fearful of being the witness. She knew the truth, but she wasn't willing to speak the truth. So being a good witness inevitably involves having courage to speak the truth, even when there's fear. But as important as knowing the truth and being willing to tell the truth are, there's actually a third aspect that's needed. (coughs) Remember Hansi Cronje back in the 1990s, one of the greatest cricket players of all time, the famous South African cricket captain? Under his captaincy, South Africa was a dominant cricket team for a long time. But then it all came crashing down in 2000. On the 7th of April, the Indian police charged Hansi Cronje with match-fixing. This is what Hansi Cronje said in response to this charge. I want to make it 100% clear that I deny ever receiving any sum of money. Four days later, Cronje changed his tune and he admitted that he had been dishonest and that he had received $15,000 for providing information and forecasting, but he denied that he had been involved in match-fixing at all. So it's at this stage you begin to ask, well, how trustworthy a witness is Hansi Cronje? He initially said he never received money, then he changed his mind and said he did receive some money, but that he didn't fix the cricket match. Is, is that believable? He had already displayed a character that had succumbed to greed, and then he lied about it. Could his second promise that he hadn't actually fixed the match be trusted? Could he be trusted with that denial? So it turns out that he couldn't be trusted. Two months later, a number of South African players came forward and admitted that they had been involved in match-fixing along with their captain, Hansi Cronje. So in the face of overwhelming evidence, Hansi Cronje finally admitted this, saying his great passion for the cricket game and for his teammates was matched by his unfortunate love of money. If a person has a tainted character, his ability to be a trustworthy witness is compromised. That's why lawyers think really carefully before putting a convicted criminal up on the stand to be a witness. Because a good witness not only knows the facts and is willing to articulate these facts, 
but also has a trustworthy character. Being trustworthy is key to being a good witness. Witness, though, isn't just a legal or policing word. It's actually a word that comes up frequently in the Bible and in Christian circles. And that's because witness is mentioned in the Bible many times. We read one of the key passages about being a witness in the Bible. Jesus was speaking to his disciples after he'd risen from the dead, and just before returning to God the Father, this is what he said. You will be my witnesses. Interesting side note is the word witness is translated from the Greek word martis. So anyway, the last words Jesus spoke to his disciples were, you'll be my witnesses, you'll be my martyrs. These 11 seemingly unimportant and mostly uneducated men were witnesses of Jesus. Perhaps they weren't the sort of people that I might have chosen, that we would imagine would be good, ideal witnesses. But Jesus knew better, because they turned out to be incredible witnesses. For a start, they had spent three years with Jesus. They knew his character. They understood what he said was important in life. They had been taught by the Master himself. They had heard words like, love your enemies. Don't store up treasure for yourself on earth. Don't swear by anything. Rather, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Those sayings of Jesus would have been etched into their very core. And after everything they had seen in Jesus, they weren't interested in power anymore. They weren't interested in prestige for themselves. They cared deeply about God, living his way and serving others. And so these disciples of Jesus were actually the perfect witnesses for Jesus. Jesus had also taught them to be people of holiness, love, honesty, integrity. They had all the right characteristics. And in the days and weeks to come, following this uh, ascension, following these last words of Jesus, when they were shouted and spat at, they didn't retaliate. They didn't retaliate with violence and they didn't cower with fear. They stood firm, courageous and peaceful. So they had the sort of characters that made them amazing witnesses. Not only had these three years of Je- with Jesus helped shape the character, it also helped them understand his message. They knew Jesus had a message about life, eternal life, forgiveness of sins. The disciples had heard Jesus say, I am the way, the truth and the life. They knew the truth. They had spent time with Jesus and then they had even seen him die and rise back to new life. They had seen the risen Jesus. So they knew Jesus had power. They knew his words weren't false, like what Tim said earlier. The disciples knew Jesus wasn't a hoax. They knew he was genuinely who he said he was. And because that was the case, any fear of speaking about Jesus could be overcome because Jesus had the power to save them and even restore their life if it was taken from them. So the disciples were ideal witnesses for Jesus. And we can see this when we read the book of Acts today. The book of Acts, the sequel to the book of Luke, tells that story about the beginning of the church. And what a story it is. Time after time it involves disciples of Jesus being witnesses of Jesus. And throughout the book, the disciples stood up to tell people about Jesus. They did it with speeches, they answered questions, and they lived lives of service and compassion. And as they did this, they accepted ridicule. 
threats, physical violence, and they never sought revenge. And they did all of this well. They did it very well because they both spoke the truth about Jesus and they reflected the character of Jesus. The 11 disciples were great witnesses who could reflect Jesus wherever they went because they were bold, they had knowledge, and they were ready to speak to others about Jesus and they had good hearts. Having learnt from the Master himself, they could reflect the very character of Jesus. So they were the first witnesses. But I think we all know, or most of us know, that these words that Jesus said about being a witness extended beyond those 11 disciples. From the very beginning of the Bible, God makes it clear that he wants to extend his blessings of love to all people. In Genesis 12, three and a half thousand years ago, God promised Abraham that all nations would be blessed through him. In Isaiah, which was written two and a half thousand years ago, God spoke about Israel being a light to the nations. And then in Acts 1, Jesus said that his disciples would be witnesses to the whole world. This idea of showing God's love and mercy to the world is a universal theme in the Bible. It's not something that 11 men could do on their own. That would be impossible. Simple logic dictates that if Jesus wants witnesses to take his message to the whole world, then he's going to need a lot more than 11 individuals. In fact, the book of Acts itself has lots of examples of witnesses beyond those 11 men. In Acts chapter 7, the man Stephen spoke clearly and powerfully about Jesus as he was being beaten and killed. Stephen wasn't one of the 11 disciples, but he was a witness. Then in chapter 8, right after Stephen died... Thousands of new Christians became afraid and dispersed, leaving Jerusalem. And as they left and returned to homes far away and set up new lives elsewhere, they were witnesses and they spread the good message of Jesus. Acts chapter 8 says this, Great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all believers except the apostles, except those eleven disciples, were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria, But the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Philip, for example, went to the city of Samaria and told the people about the Messiah. And then later in Acts, the amazing man Paul. He wasn't one of the the 11 disciples and he was probably the most influential Christian in history. He went from town to town telling people about Jesus. And as he went, thousands of people believed and put their trust in Jesus. So the book of Acts demonstrates the command of Jesus to be witnesses throughout the world wasn't meant just for those 11. And I'm pretty sure that those instructions about being a witness of Jesus actually apply to every single person who follows Jesus. In fact, perhaps it's not actually a command or an instruction, but rather maybe it's a statement of fact about an essential element of being a Christian. The more I think about it, the more I think that when Jesus said, you, are, you will be my witnesses, wasn't actually a command. It's more a statement of reality. If we're a follower of Jesus, we are witnesses. That's just who we are. Growing up, I had a friend, Stephen. I haven't seen him for a long time, but I still remember clearly him being interested in faith through high school. Then in his early 20s, he lost that interest. And one day I asked him why. And it turned out that a priest, or might have been a chaplain, at the high school he attended, 
had turned out to be a pedophile. Stephen had really respected that man. So when he heard the news of this, it really had a big, big impact on him. From Stephen's point of view, this man, who was apparently close to God, turned out to be a fraud. So because of that, Stephen lost his faith, not just in that man, but in who he represented, in Jesus. Because that man represented Jesus to him. The church represented Jesus to him. From Stephen's perspective, this man being a fraud confirmed in his mind that all this stuff about Jesus was nonsense. So I guess the story illustrates that Christians are witnesses to Jesus, even if we're not thinking we are. Even if we don't want to be. We are. The rest of the world sees us and thinks about Jesus because of how we act. I think the words of Jesus about being a witness apply to us now, today, just as much as they did to the disciples. Jesus wants us to be his witnesses. Of course, sometimes we don't really want to be his witness. Sometimes I have reasons for not wanting to tell people about Jesus. Sometimes I think they're pretty good reasons. Of course, they're probably not good reasons. So for those, those of us here who are Christians, I'm sure you can identify with that. Anyone want to share some of the reasons or possibly excuses that they use to avoid sharing good news about Jesus with friends and family? Don't want to die. You don't want to die? Don't want to die. Yep. Although it's unlikely for us to die. Yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> oh, is it for us? Okay. Yeah. More for us. Fear of being ridiculed or yeah. things. It can be a bit embarrassing, isn't it? Yeah. And also, it's then all the other interactions you have with them because if they're not always perfect, mm. then there's heavy judgment. Yeah. Mm. Yep. You don't know what the reactions will be. Yep. And uh, you're probably afraid what they would think. Yep. Yep. And you got to just keep pushing yourself. You do. Yeah, I had an uncle that uh, he had stage four uh, cancer. He's he died now. He's been there a few years. But he wasn't a Christian. And he come from a pretty rough family and everything. And, uh, towards the end, he accepted Christ in his life. Mm. And I told him, I said, uh, you don't need to fear death when you have Jesus in your life. It's powerful, yeah. It's easy, though, to not tell people things like that because we're a bit embarrassed and we don't know how they're going to react. Here's the list of excuses that I come up with. I don't want to be pushy. I don't want to appear, I don't want to appear arrogant. I'm afraid other people will think I'm weird. I assume that other people have already heard the message of Jesus and have made up their minds. I don't think I know this person well enough. I don't think it will make any difference anyway. And here's another excuse that our culture tries to tell us. People don't need to hear the message of Jesus. But these are often just excuses driven by fear or laziness. And that last excuse, that people don't need to hear the message of Jesus, is perhaps the least true of all. Everyone needs to hear the message. That's what Jesus wants. It's what he calls us to do. Because he holds the message of life, of real life, life to the full. And everyone needs to hear it. 
And that's why he said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, in Samaria, and to the whole earth. The whole world, everywhere. Let's look a little bit deeper, though, at that statement of Jesus about being witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Because we focus on geography when we hear that, or at least I do. But I don't think Jesus wants us to be geographical about this statement, which sounds crazy because these are all geographical places. We've gone too far, have we? Um, That's right, yep. Yep. So, we've got Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and the whole earth there. Um, Yeah, so... These sound like geographical places. But actually, to the 11 disciples of Jesus, I think they would have understood these less in terms of geography and more in terms of something else. Let me explain. Back in the time of Jesus, Jewish people divided the world into two groups, Jews and Gentiles. The Jews, of course, were the ethnic group who believed in the one true God, and they still existed to people today. The Gentiles, on the other hand, were the people of the rest of the world, people who had all sorts of gods and beliefs. And then there was this kind of in-between group, the Samaritans, Samaria. They were sort of in-between people who were a mixture of ethnic groups who believed in one true God but had a lot of misunderstandings about him. So when Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth, he was speaking in that language of ethnic and religious identity. Jerusalem and Judea meant Jewish people, that is, people who already know about God. Samaria means Samaritans, people who believed there was a God but had all sorts of mixed-up ideas about him. And to the ends of the earth meant Gentile people, people who didn't believe in God but believed in other gods. So when the disciples asked about Jesus freeing the kingdom of Israel, they were thinking about a political and ethnic kingdom for the Jews. And Jesus by his very response to the disciples, showed that his vision was of a kingdom that would be all-embracing, all of humanity. A kingdom defined, though, by a spiritual truth and reality, not a human empire. So put the words of Jesus into modern-day terms, and this is how we can almost read it. You will be my witness among other Christians, and also to people who believe in God but don't really know much about him, and also to people who don't believe in God at all. For Christians, thinking, this, thinking of it this way instead of geographically is helpful because it means that we can be witnesses to Jesus wherever we are, to whoever we meet. We don't actually have to travel the globe to be a witness for Jesus. That's not the only way to be a missionary. Christians are missionaries wherever they live and they're witnesses to everyone in society. So it makes us all witnesses to Jesus in multicultural religiously plural Australia. We're witnesses not only for people who don't know Jesus, but also actually even for our fellow Christians. Now, many of us here are followers of Jesus. So let's take on board this message again. We are witnesses for Jesus wherever we are, whatever we do, all the time, at home with our families, at school or uni or work, walking down the street, doing the shopping, going to the gym. We're witnesses for Jesus, wherever, whatever, always a witness. Others here may not be followers of Jesus. Others here here may not be Christians. 
And I guess you might reasonably wonder, well, what's there for me to get out of this statement, these words from the Bible? But perhaps at the very least, reading these words of Jesus to Christians gives an insight into how Christians think. So next time you hear a Christian trying to tell someone about Jesus, you'll understand that this is important stuff for the Christian. He's trying to be obedient to what he believes is his main purpose in life. Also, possibly there have been times that, if you're not a Christian here, that you've been on the receiving end of a Christian who hasn't actually represented Jesus very well and hasn't treated you with love, in which case, let me say sorry. I guess like anyone else, Christians are imperfect. We don't always get it right when it comes to being a witness for Jesus. So forgive us for those times. But don't let our failings turn you away from the truth. Jesus commanded his disciples to be witnesses for him. Obviously Jesus thinks his message is crucial for you. Obviously he thinks everyone needs to hear it. So we need to consider, if you're not a Christian, you need to consider why Jesus thought this message was so crucial for you. When we find truth through Jesus, that's the calling for us, to be his witness, a calling to be his witness. Let's not stare into space thinking about that, thinking about what we've seen in Jesus. Let's actually listen to his call and let's act on it. Let's do it. Let's be witnesses who tell of his message of love and compassion, of truth and of holiness and of mercy and forgiveness. Let's be, each of us, a witness who reflects this message in our very character through lives of love and compassion, truth and holiness, mercy and forgiveness. That's our call for today, for this week, for this year and for our whole life. So, what are you staring into space for? Get going. (laughs)